So today our, our text deals with this uncomfortable topic of money. And whenever you hear this topic brought up in church, you might rightly be maybe a bit suspicious. Usually a lot of times there's like a big thermometer in the back with like a building campaign and maybe you're used to uh, you know, pressure and guilt tactics heaped upon the congregation trying to you know, get them to open up their pocketbooks for the cause du jour. Maybe some of you, maybe back when you read the, the book To Kill a Mockingbird, you remember the scene where the, the pastor, where they, they close the church up, this hot, this hot church, and, and they won't let people out until, until the giving reaches a certain amount. I mean, Josh has the keys. You guys might be in for a long, a long uh, sermon today. Um, or maybe it's the, you know, the ubiquitous you know, guy in an expensive suit on TV telling you, if you just give this seed investment uh, to me, then God's going to bless you tenfold later, right? And, you know, and they're very slick and well-polished and you know, promising wealth and riches if you just give to them. So, so we're rightly cautious, especially the older we get, when money is brought up in, church, in a church context, it's really easy to be jaded. Perhaps many of us knows of pastors or church administrators who have embezzled funds. We know that money can cause serious issues. But I picked this text for the simple reason I, I was listening to a, a sermon on it, and it, I just found it extremely convicting. And simultaneously, it's really edifying. The theology here is really intriguing. And it reminded me that, you know, the, bunny, the, 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 the Bible talks about money more than we're comfortable with, right? I mean... Money has this way of kind of putting a pinprick in what we really believe. It kind of pushes past our facade, pushes us past our own rationalizations and, and self-deception. It kind of puts a real costly value of what does obedience to Christ really look like, and it gives it this tangible, this, this tangible thing we can actually see and, and feel the cost of. The, the late Tim Keller said, if he preached about money as much as the Bible d- discussed it, he wouldn't have a church. People would stop coming because it's, it's so uncomfortable. But th- this is kind of an interesting observation, isn't it? So if the Bible and Jesus in particular and Paul here discuss money and confront greed so often, why do we talk about it so little in the church? And perhaps it's for fear of what I discussed earlier. We, we don't want our, our motives questions. We don't want to be lumped in with these false teachers that are all about money, all about you know, gaining ex- extravagant, extravagant wealth, which obviously this text here deals with quite uh, strongly. But I don't think that's an option for us if we're faithful. I think we have to deal with it probably pretty regularly because there's a reason Jesus and Paul teach on it so often. And, you know, I've been in gospel churches for decades now, and I can't think of one time I heard someone say, you know, you know I'm, I'm just really struggling with greed right now. I wonder if any of you have ever heard that. I'm just really struggling. That I'm, not, I'm just not content with what I have. Now, we might talk about all sorts of myriad of other struggles. I've heard of many confessions, you know, serious and sincere confessions, but somehow this one doesn't seem to come up very much. And, you know, it must happen. If Paul and Jesus warn about it as much as they do, I don't think somehow in 2023 we're less prone to the love of money than first century Christians were living in the the wealthiest country and perhaps one of the most uh, opulent times in all of human history. I, don't, I, I somehow find that hard to believe. But I think there's probably two primary reasons that we don't discuss it. Shame and self-delusion. Shame and self-delusion. First, I think we're, we're shamed, we're embarrassed to even bring it up. Discuss, discussing money, it, it, it feels a little bit icky, right? Maybe a little bit unspiritual. Perhaps some of you guys read the recent headline. There was a recent headline that said, uh, credit card debt in the United States just passed $1 trillion. 
But I found really interesting, embedded in one of these articles, there was this representative from like a credit reporting agency that did a bunch of polling of, of people uh, on this. And they said that people stated they were willing, they were more willing to talk about religion and politics than about their finances. And I found that utterly astonishing. The, the, the two third rail topics that you can't bring up in, in polite culture and finances and money were even worse than that. So I think there's just the shame there. There's a guilt that we don't, we don't want to have that self-reflection because it might be kind of painful. We might have to admit, maybe we're living a little bit beyond our means. It's kind of like, I was thinking it's like when you don't want to go to the doctor and get the test because, you, you know, out of sight, out of mind. You don't want to get the bad news, right? So you just don't want to think about it, don't want to look at it. It's, it's, shame, it's shame-inducing. Maybe some of it's we don't want to admit our own greed because then that lumps us up with those evil rich people we might think we're better than. Secondly, I think we we blow past these admonishments because it's just too easy to exclude ourselves from this category. We're we're, we're self-deluded. It's it's too easy to compare ourselves to the right people. And we can look quite frugal and meager, right? You can go to to a very wealthy CEO and you say, man, my yacht's not near as big as Jeff Bezos's. You know, I'm just barely scraping by. Like, it all depends on who we're comparing ourselves to, right? I think for most of us here, if we compared ourselves to the world at large, we live lives of extravagance. So this morning, I just, let's be careful not to quickly dismiss the idea that this is a real temptation that we have to be on guard for. So let's dive into the text. First, we're going to see Paul give us a call to contentment. A call to contentment. Read with me at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and self-destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul starts off with this call to contentment. Rather than material gain that the false teachers were promising back in verse 5, they were saying that, that if, you, if you were obedient enough, you would get this material gain. Paul's saying, rather, contentment brings great gain. He's juxtaposing the two. And I think we all kind of know the, the inherent difficulty of what Paul's saying here. It's really easy for us just to may, maybe admit or, or to say, ah, you know, all, all I need is just, I just need the essentials. But we all know there's, a, there's always a pull for more, right? Just a little bit nicer house, maybe just, just a little nicer car, a little better vacation, maybe a little nice, fancier clothes, maybe a little few more toys for our hobbies. There's always something more, right? Financial planners call this lifestyle creep. You know, we all probably first start out in our, in our teens flipping burgers and, you know, making pretty low wages. But, you know, you, you keep working in your vocation, you might get a few raises and your lifestyle bumps up. You go from maybe that that starter apartment to your starter house. And it can happen without we're even conscious with it. Our, our, our lifestyle just assumes to look like those that are around us. If our neighbor gets the new car, we think, yeah, I should probably get someone about the same, same cost, right? That's, that's, that's just what happens, right? We, we, just kind of ma- we just kind of match what's around us. Now, there can be almost an insidious flip side to this, too. There can be a, a pride for barely scraping by where we must be doing good at this contentment thing I, there's no way I'm materialistic because I have it so hard. But Paul is really giving us a vision for a God-centered contentment here, one that's devoid of comparing ourselves to those who are better or worse off. So 
he's calling for like this deep-seated gratitude for what God himself has provided. So either, either side of the, of the equation really, really don't work here. Now notice, I really like how Paul just levels the playing field rich and poor by pointing out the fleeting nature of material goods. These things aren't coming with us. From, from the richest billionaire to the poorest among us, when death comes, we don't take any of it with us. Just think with me, all the trappings of extravagance, and they provide no advantage in the light, of, uh, in the light and the certainty of the grave. Isn't that, that, just, that just levels the playing field in the church and in the world, world around us. We're all in the same boat. Not, nothing, we, nothing we gain or earn is coming with us. So this eternal perspective he's giving us kind of helps us put these material things in the rightful place. So notice, Paul doesn't say they're irrelevant. He's saying he acknowledges the need for basic necessities, not this complete aesthetic or just spiritualizing everything, saying if you're just really godly, you know, food will, mag- food will magically appear before you. He, he's saying, you know what, we need these basic necessities. And maybe in our day we might expand it just covering our basic bills or, or things like that. Paul goes, and Paul, you know, in other places, will go so far to say, if you're able-bodied and you're able to work and you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Paul, Paul has this strong view of, of work and, 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 and a, a, an ethic of hard work. So these admonitions don't really give us, uh, this, this admonition to contentment doesn't give us an excuse for laziness or idleness. But in the call for contentment, it does con- confront head-on probably our biggest obstacle to contentment, Right? Paul says those who want to get rich, those who have a desire to, to live beyond contentment, fall into a trap. I, I th- really think embedded in this, we, could, we, we think there's like an, 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 embedded, uh, you know, an embedded comparison to others. You, know, you want to be like the rich, right? There's something sneaky about this desire to get rich. It kind of becomes all-encompassing. The, the, the things people would have thought maybe five years ago were completely unthinkable, now become just a means to an end and if you would ask you would have asked them years before would you ever do that to 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 get a little bit more money no way no way but it's sneaky it it kind of it kind of changes who we are as a person it, it uh, I, I know i've been sat there at, at work meetings and heard people utter things that would just utterly sh- shock me and think man the power of money that would cause them to say something like that that i guarantee you in their better moments they would have never thought was possible it, it really can make you admire just how strong of a force money is to warp people. To, to me, it reminds me of, it's kind of like the, the weeds in the parable of the sower where these this weeds of material gain and notoriety and financial security kind of choke out spiritual things around us. Paul calls this desire for, for great wealth foolish. He calls it, you're a fool if you do this. And I think this is still probably in reference to his previous point that, that hey, this stuff's fleeting. This, this stuff's temporal. This, this stuff ain't coming with you uh, beyond the grave. But even worse than just being a fool, it's actually actively harmful. Notice it's leading to this path of ruin, not of light and life like Christ offers, but this path of ruin and destruction. We have these, these two paths here, and money is really at the center of it. So then comes the, the famous verse that, that we've probably all heard growing up. In, in verse 10 there, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, first, I want to kind of deal with the textual issues. Some of you might, might have grown up and memorized the King James Version. Money is the root of all evil. And that's actually literally what the original reads. It says money is the root of all evil. But the, the translators here add kinds, since all in Greek can often mean 
all of a certain group or class or kind of something. So it's, it's kind of an interpretive uh, judgment here, but it's prob- probably right considering th- there might be roots. That, <laughs> I think we all know there's probably a few other roots to evil than just money. But think with me how totalizing this is. See, this text isn't just for, for the wealthy, but for anyone, because it's this love or this passion or desire for money that's at the root of so much of what we experience. I think most of the stats say most divorces center around money. Uh, the, the reason why we have locks on our cars and our doors is because we know people have a strong love for money, and they, they're willing to, to break in and take it. In a previous job I had, I, I, some of you know I'm, I'm an electrical engineer, and I, I sold computer chips for all sorts of different in- industries. And I remember vividly, I, I was at this presentation for this specific, or specific processor chip that could go in ATM machines and, and, and a, and, or other like really sensitive financial you know, information. Now, all these kind of presentations, a lot of these processors, I mean, they're very, very complicated, just pages and pages of really technical specifications and uh, features. But these ones were just took the cake. I mean, the amount of time that went into it to make sure hackers and thieves could not, they, they would literally spend tens of thousands of dollars to freeze chips and, and take chemicals to decap them and, and just to get sensitive uh, financial information to steal, right? So the amount of time that went into them, they created circuits in them that if they were tampered with would, would destroy parts of the chip. They created dummy circuits in the silicon so it would confuse people who are trying to figure out what's going on. There, there was all sorts of numerous encryptions, all, all, through the, all these encryption engines that would hide the data from prying eyes. I just remember thinking, what a waste is all this? I mean, this stuff's very technical. I think about man hours of some of the, probably the smartest people in the world were working on this, all just to prevent stealing, all just to prevent theft. I mean, think about if all that effort, all that brain power can be been d- directed towards, you know, something like nuclear fusion or some medical advancement, cure for cancer, some invention that could help humanity as a whole, inventions that might help the poor, the sick, or the weak. But no, we had man years of, of engineering power fueling how to destroy circuits so people couldn't steal people's uh, financial information. It's really just integral to our fallen world that this love for money just really, and, and we all kind of take it for granted because we grow up, Knowing you got to lock things, you got to protect things because it, it's just taken for granted. But I think if we step back, we look at just how, how integral th- this is to j- just the world bent against God. Now, secondly, notice, isn't it curious that Paul says it's the love of money that's the issue here? He doesn't say it's having it. He says it, it's not even a tacit call to poverty. Paul is much more concerned with our desires. He's much more concerned with the longing of our heart. And I really find this, uh, this is a helpful corrective to kind of the two ways you'll see kind of in Christian history and Christian, uh, and Christian theology that people have kind of t- attempted to deal with this topic of money. See, one side have kind of tended towards this, this call to a life of poverty as a way to kind of curb your desires for riches. You can really see this in some of the early Christian practices, such as the, the desert fathers. who They would go way off in the desert, and they chose this extreme asceticism Renouncing all pleasures of senses and rich food and baths, rest, anything, anything that made you comfortable, all as a means to, a, a big part of it was this life of poverty. A, a big part of it was avoiding the desire for wealth and riches. And people would travel for miles around just to seek their counsel because they were considered so holy and, and, and so wise. 
But if, but if you read some of the accounts from, like, say, St. Anthony, some of, these, some of these thinkers, this didn't fix the human heart. They, they write of great struggles for the desire for more comfort, more wealth, along with temptations of lust and pride, just of any normal Christian. It, just, just going off away into the desert and being, and, 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 you know, and, you know, fasting and praying didn't fix the human heart. So really, it, it's really sort of a, a short circuit way where we're trying to just get around the heart issues and just say, well, I got this greed box checked because I just went and went into poverty. But we know that God knows our heart. He knows our intentions. And, and really, this isn't faithful to all of Scripture. Uh, perhaps some of you remember the, the, you remember the Proverbs 31 woman. There's lots of you know, women's conferences all in the Proverbs 31 woman. In, in Proverbs 31, this, this is some of the attributes of her. And he, the Proverbs, they, they write, an, an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. She, she does good, uh, him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. So apparently this, this, this Proverbs 31 woman, she's a businesswoman. She's, she's causing her husband no lack of gain. That's, that's a financial term there. She's dealing in real estate, buying these fields that are great for planting. So if, if all these, these, this gain of wealth is to be eschewed, if only a, li- a life of poverty is faithful, how, how is she such a catch, right? Isn't she just, isn't she just getting more stuff that's just going to cause you to, to, to be greedy? I mean, isn't this a bad thing on this theology? And that's not to mention the, the numerous Bible characters that clearly have some wealth and are faithful, I mean, Job ends up quite well off in the end after all the trials. Philemon in the New Testament has a, has a house large enough to hold the whole church in it, so there's a little bit of wealth. Same with Lydia. She hosted church meetings. So if we, we know that the faithful gospel-centered life isn't only one of poverty, because that doesn't, just, doesn't fit the model here. That doesn't fit all the, biblical, uh, all, all the biblical data. Now, on the flip side, of course, there's kind of that health and wealth prosperity side. You know, it just kind of goes with this just basic intuition of, well, if God's our father, wouldn't he rich, richly bless his children? Don't, don't you want your children to, you know, to be blessed and, and prosper and, and you give them gifts? And, uh, but we know this kind of theology just really doesn't fare well in the light of scripture. I mean, just to name uh, one, Christ qu- quoting the Old Testament, Isaiah, he says, lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And our, our own text here really shoots down this idea because it denounces those who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. I mean, I can't think of a better summary of prosperity gospel theology than thinking that godliness is a way to material gain. And it's just, it's just not an option. But you see, so the, the, this text is really, and really the Bible as a whole is helping us navigate these two errors, right? And really it leads us to this idea that it's up to God, the sovereign God, to bless our labors, maybe extravagantly or maybe just, just, with, with, a, just with a working wage labor, our, our, our life. And it really follows what Paul says. Paul, Paul in Philippians, remember, he, and he, even while he was preaching the gospel, he worked as a tent maker. He, he had vocations. Paul says in Philippians, he said, he learned. I like that, he learned. It wasn't, it wasn't something immediately, immediately easy for him. He had to learn it through, through experience and into this process of, of sanctification. 
he learned to be content in whatever state he was in, whether he had much or he had little. Notice he doesn't say, when I had much, I, you know, I had to quickly give it away because that was, that was evil and uh, you know, I, I, I was going way beyond my means. Or if I had little, you know, I w- God wasn't blessing me because I was being unfaithful. He just says, God gave me these circumstances and I learned, learned, learned to, to praise God and be thankful in whichever one God brought. It's really kind of Job's takeaway where he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I leave. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So whatever circumstance we're in, as Christians, we say in, in, great, in great want or in, in, in great wealth, we say, thanks be to God. But I want to just, let's just get just really practical for a minute. I mean, how does this actually work? You know, you, how does this actually work in real life? life? I mean, how does this contentment look with the, with the love of money and, and with financial gain? How, I mean, how can uh, blessing in, you know, in Proverbs 31 be contrasted with not loving money. So does this mean, can a Christian, you know, ask for a raise? You know, your boss comes in and says, man, you know, I've, I've recognized you're, you're doing good. I really like your contributions. Nah, I'm a Christian. You know, m- maybe pay me a bit less, actually. You know, I don't, don't cause me to stumble. You know, absolutely not. No, we're, we're good st- stewards of God's gifts. If, if, we're, if we're recognized or, or if a new job opportunity comes up, I think we're perfectly, we're perfectly within our bounds to, to, Praise God for that and, and accept that. On the flip side, however, if that new opportunity comes and maybe, maybe it's a huge raise and, and we're, we're, we're quite excited, but maybe it'll cause an extreme amount of travel, take, take us away from our church community, maybe family commitments, maybe, maybe, maybe just, you know, the job itself might be difficult, difficult for you to do faithfully. It, it, maybe there might be some moral compromise in it. That's where we take, that's where we t- we take this prudence moment say, Am I, ju- am I just going after the wealth here? Am I just going after the money, or, or am I actually being, being faithful to what God has called me to do? So I, th- I, so I think we can get really practical, practical here and just say, yeah, we can, we, can, we can ask for a raise if we need one. Maybe, maybe at times if we're in a certain financial situation, I even have to work some extra hours to cover, cover debts or just loss of a job. But, but we, we always want to go back to where, where's our heart in it? Where, where, where's our motives in it? I remember that same job I was working in. I'd, I I met a lot of people who were these regional managers, and they were uh, made made very good money, but their 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 home life was always a mess. And they were because they were never there. They were they were just traveling everywhere. And I just remember thinking, just think, just thinking to myself, this has to be a caution, because it sounds it's so easy to say, yeah, I would never do that, but but then when the offer comes, the money's on the table. It's much harder to say to say no <laughs> or to say yes if 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 you change if you change the arrangement or or you know so it it really does come down to our our the, our heart motives and and obviously it'll be individual for all of us but what about just practicing wise financial planning you know may, maybe having that emergency fund you know if you talk to your financial planner they tell you you know 3 to 6 months of expenses maybe more if your income's really variable I mean, in the olden days they called it the rain, rainy day fund right seems like there's maybe some some wisdom to this. If we're stewards of God's, God's money, it's probably not wise in a fallen, broken world to, to live right on the edge of our means so that any little, little mishap happens and puts us into severe circumstances. But, and, you know, maybe, and, you know, saving for retirement seems probably a smart thing, at least to not try to be a total bur- burden on our, our kids when we're unable to work and we're older. But here's the, here's the catch, because this, this was part I was kind of struggling with, was 
those things I think are great and we can be a good steward of God's money if they're not our ultimate hope. Because I think it's, it's, it, th- there is a sense of safety, right? I have, I have my 401k sa- sa- saved away and there's a sense of, of kind of a safety in that. But I think as the Christian, we, we do, we labor, we save, we give, we spend, but ultimately we have to trust that God is sovereign he, and he's our ultimate hope. He, our hope isn't in our, our 401k. We have to say if something catastrophic happens and the market wipes out all our retirement, we say with Job and say we, we bless the name of the Lord. And that's the hard part is, is really, really assessing our own motives and just saying, am I, am, am, I, am I being a good steward or am I putting my hope and my faith and my trust in these material, in, in these material uh, means to an end? And, that, and that, that's, that's really where I think we've got to wrestle with it on, on, on a personal level. So first we've seen this call to contentment. Secondly, we see a right pursuit, a right pursuit. And Paul says in verse 11, But you, O man, flee from these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So here Paul is really following a common pattern that we see often in his letters. He won't always tell us what not to do, kind of Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. But he always tells, but often, oftentimes he'll tell us what we must do, what, what we should pursue, what we should think about, what we, what we, what the, the good things that we should do. And I think this is not to say that there are times when we just need those blanket commandment no's, right? We, we, there's some sins that require the Joseph treatment. When, when Potiphar's wife's trying to seduce him, he just flees. He just goes. And like there might be certain sins or, or issues where we just need the no, and that's what we've got to focus on. Maybe, maybe if we've had substance abuse issues, it might be best just to set hard and fast rules that we're just never around it. Just wise, right? We're going to flee. Maybe, maybe if we were involved in a financial scandal or lost money in like a foolish gambling or, or risky investment. might be good to set up really strict rules with our finances to, to, to just restrict how our money's accessed, just to not even give us, give us the opportunity, right? Uh, I was listening to John Piper said, you know, he'd written many, many books. He said, he, he set up all the royalties from his books go into, go into some other fund, just so he wasn't tempted. It, it, he said, it's not even my money. I can't even think about it. I can't, I can't, uh, I can't possibly uh, lust after it. It's not mine. It's it's going over here. I can't even touch it. Someone else is in control of it, and, and he just for, for his own heart, for his 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 own uh, relationship with God, that was the best way he did it. So there might be just certain times where we set up with some some sin. We're setting up that we do got, do got to focus just on the no, just on the fleeing. But however, if we only ever do that, if we only ever focus on the prohibitions on what we must not do, we'll really lose sight of what we should do, what we should pursue. And, and here Paul says we should flee. So what are we fleeing here? We're fleeing this love of money he talked about. We're fleeing this pursuit, this inordinate desire for wealth on this path to destruction. But we don't just flee the love of money. He's saying pursue righteousness and love. So we don't just go moping around, noticing in our heart, man, you know, I have a little bit too much desire for that new electronic gadget or, or you know, a little nicer clothes. I mean, what, what a sad sight the Christian community would be if we're all kind of just looking at our toes, just kind of a little bit mopey and uh, downtrodden. But this is that common pattern Paul has. He'll say, put off this and put on this. Don't do this, do this. And we really need both. Because if we focus on the positive too much, we can, we can too often let very real sins go unconfronted, unchallenged. But if we only do the negative, we lose heart. We kind of become these guilt-ridden, uh, guilt-ridden negative Christians with, without a positive vision for what should we be doing. And, and if we think of the work of the Spirit, it really works on both sides, right? The Spirit works in conviction of sin 
and the production of the fruit of the Spirit. It's a both and. And I really like how, here how Paul, he, he assumes this is a work. He says, fight the good fight of faith when he's saying this. See, he assumes there's a battle here. This isn't just something that we walk in and we have this kind of Superman Christian S on our chest and we, you know, because we keep in step with the Spirit, we're going to float through all longing for material gain and that's just going to vanish. Paul assumes there's a battle here, that there's a fight, that, 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 that it's going to take work and maybe, maybe confession and repentance and, and, and it's not just going to come easily. Might, maybe it'll take a discussion with a friend, a sermon or a podcast that just pricks us in, in, in this area. Or, or maybe at times it might, be, it might be a conversation with someone where maybe their, their greed seems so obvious that then you step back and take a look and you realize the plank in your own eye. If ever, that's ever happened to you or you, you, you hear something odd and you think, man, that sounds so obvious that they're struggling with that and you st- take a step back and think, well, maybe I am too. So just this honest recognition of, of where our own heart is. And I really love how he finishes this section on fighting the good fight of faith. faith. He reminds us who God is. Just the doctrine of God. See, in the, in the heat of this battle against, against greed in our heart, we have to need to remind it, who is it that we serve? Why is he more worthy than these things that are so easily distracting me? Paul says in verse 15, he says, He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen and no one can see. To him be honor and eternal power. Amen. So we're not just, we're not just killing sin in, in Paul, Paul's terms in Romans 8. We're not just killing sin to look like a good Christian, but, but to know the only sovereign of the universe better, closer, to serve him well. It, this all reminds us that it's God's anyway. He's the creator. We're the created. We're merely stewards of what he gives and what he entrusts us with. So lastly, Paul leaves us with the obligations of the wealthy. The obligations of the wealthy. And here it's really interesting. Paul specifically addresses the wealthy members of his congregation. He, he singles them out. In, in verse 17, he says, Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Now, there's a lot packed in here. First, I want to focus again, what does he not say? He's specifically talking to the wealthy. And he doesn't say, sell all your goods and go live in a life of poverty. Now, now Jesus does say that to the rich young ruler, if you remember back in that story. But he didn't say this to everyone, right? This was kind of his way of putting his thumb in the sore that was the greatest idol, for, that was the obstacle of faith of that person. See, Jesus had a totally different approach when he spoke with the women of the well. You know, she, had, she had completely different issues he was addressing. But again, Paul's approach here is kind of wisely balanced. His, his sound advice walks this line between this extreme world-denying asceticism, but also a self-centered indulgence. Notice our second observation here. Why does, uh, why does Paul warn the rich against arrogance, against haughtiness, against pride? Why is it that the, the rich are more prone to pride and this prideful demeanor? Well, I think if we can think even just our culture for a moment, imagine if we're comparing, say, someone who's uh, more middle income versus lower income. 
you, you might be more likely to have more people serve you than you serve others. So you're going to have people bring you food, fix things for you. You're going to be served more than, more than you serve. Your education might be a bit higher. Your entertainment different. Aesthetic preferences different. So even without thinking about it, it's easy to develop an identity that's molded around, oh, I shop at this store, not that store. Or, or I, you know, people do this for me. I don't do that. Even without thinking about it. Now, in the church, this becomes a huge issue. Because remember, our, what's, our, what's our image? of what, what is the church? It's, it's a lot of times likened to a body. So we have all these different members, hands, feet, head, all united in this common purpose, working together for a common goal. Now, how does it look if one, one member is just prideful compared to another? How, how does that work? How, how is that a united body? The, the book, of, book of James really actually specifically mentions this with Christians flaunting their wealth with jewelry and then they get the best seat in the gathering while the poor would come in in rags and they'd have to sit on the floor. These kind of divisions really spring from this haughty attitude that, that really comes from the world. It doesn't come from a gospel-centered one. And I, and I think this really comes down to an issue of identity. If we get our identity from Christ we know that the infinitely worthy Son of God had to, to die for my iniquity. If we get our identity from Christ, we know that the infinitely worthy Son of God had to die for my iniquity. Of what significance is my bank account in the light of the death of Christ? Of what moment is a piece of paper or a college degree or a fancy car in the light of the death of the Son of God? If we get our identity from the world, we're taught, often subliminally, to puff out our chests a bit, constantly compare or at least yearn yearn for more lastly notice what replaces the arrogance here and that he's that he's asked that he's calling the wealthy to what replaces it it's it's gratitude and giving paul says it is god who richly provides us with all things again here i think there's a caution against asceticism perhaps there's possessions we all have here that are just well crafted maybe they work really well maybe they're beautiful and I think we can give thanks to God and praise because these are part of human ingenuity that's all patterned, that's all patterned after God's own image, that we're, we're creators because, he's, because he's the, we're creative because he's the creator. And we have gratitude for good things. God has given us skilled chefs that make delicious food, well-engineered tools, exquisite art. I think we can just give thanks and gratitude for that, right? I don't think we have to live this, this extreme asceticism. If you look at you know, books like Ecclesiastes is constantly just saying, you're just constantly just thanking God for good, a good meal. So, so sometimes we just need to sit back and just, and just be grateful for, for, for the good things we have. But we don't just admire good things. We don't just sit there and, and revel and, and at, 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 say, various possessions we have that, 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 do give us, that, that do give us that gratitude. We look for ways to share those or just even straight up give to others in need. Or like as John Wesley said, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. The third part's the hardest of that, right? This, this giving side, this, uh, the, the, the gratitude's hard, but the giving's even harder. We, we, we give because God gave to us. So rather than being puffed up with pride that we, we have so much, we earned this, we, we attained this status, we're humbled by God's generosity and attempt to mirror that to others in our life. And really this, again, reorients us to our hope in eternal things. Paul is saying, this, this is storing up treasures in the coming age. Notice he, 
He even says it's the wealthy in the present age. Just again, reminding him, this is only temporary, guys. Your, your status here is only temporary, but what you do with it might have reverberations into eternity. Here, he's telling people, invest in the people of God, taking care of their needs and burdens, like Galatians tells us. This allows us to, to, to follow through on commands, like from James, to take care of widows and orphans. This, this really makes Christians look weird in a, in a really attractive way, doesn't it? There, there's something otherworldly about caring for others in, in a selfless manner, especially the wealthy, when everything around them might be telling them, you guys, you guys did it right. You guys are doing well. The, the gospel is saying, man, this is a great opportunity to bless others. This is a great opportunity to, to help those who Christ called me to. This really makes the gospel look attractive. It makes it look different than the competing isms and truth claims and movements that are all around us. So as we conclude this morning, I, really, I think we just want to be left with this question. Where is our treasure? Where is our treasure? Jesus says in Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man covered up. Then in his joy, he sells, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. I think we need to be reminded this morning of the treasure we have in the gospel of Christ. To me, there's something just unbelievable about that. In his joy, he sells all that he has. You can just see him smiling as he sells all he has to, to go and purchase this field, to, to have, the, to have that, the, the kingdom of heaven, to have Christ. There's something inestimable about the value of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There, there's something precious about the forgiveness and life we have in Christ that's so easy to lose sight of that we can be reminded of today and kind of ask ourselves, where's our treasure? Where's our ultimate treasure? Because I think this, this alone is what keeps us from trusting in wealth because we just be, are reminded it's powerless to save us. It's powerless to, to, to meet our ultimate need. It's powerless to meet our greatest need, our fallenness and sin and our need for redemption and rescue in Jesus. And it really just renews our perspective. We are ready to, to work hard and, and honestly, but then ready to give liberally. When, when our greatest desire is not for riches, but to be rich in these, in these good deeds, he calls these spirit-wrought good deeds. It really transforms how our lives look, where our hope's placed, and what the church of Jesus Christ and our witness to the world. It's really transformative of all this. So I think just ultimately we just want to be reminded our hope is firmly planted in Jesus. And I think for each one of us as we assess these things, there's different pricks that, that this kind of message gives, but just ultimately reminded our, 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 our hope is firmly implanted in Jesus, not, not our bank account, not our college degree. It even transforms the hope we have for our kids. Because the, the world will say, what, what's success? It's all tied around money. Well, maybe not. If we're if, you know, in the Christian community, our success is tied much more to how well, how well are they serving the God, the, the God of the universe? really just transforms what, what our priorities are in, in life, in, in family. It, it, it's, it, it's totalizing. Let's close our, in, a, in a word of prayer. Father, we acknowledge our hearts are often prone to be drawn to the things you give in, in ways that obscure you as the giver. Um, 
we ask that by the work of your spirit we would be uh, we would not be lovers of money but we would be rich in these good deeds rich in gentleness and love and righteousness that you would give us a heart for others ready to be lavishly generous uh, ready to um, to give our our time and our effort and our our money and our um, our whole self to the the gospel and to and to serving um, we pray that uh, as we uh, as we assess these things we would we would both put off and put on that we wouldn't wallow in in our sin but also turn and pursue the things you would have us to so that we would be people who are are joyful that we would that we'd exude this joy for the treasure we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.